This ticker podcast is coming to you from the Citadel Securities Trading Post on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I genuinely love the process of manipulating people online for money. And just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not, not, not what's happening. And just remember, not, and just remember and just what you're seeing is what you're seeing is what you're seeing is what you're seeing. I genuinely love the process of manipulating people and getting the business out of the flow. Look, 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 my friends have lost their tickets and my phone care is on asking. Disgusting. And shiny. Wow. Hi, everybody. Disinformation, now known as fake news. There's nothing new to capital markets. Throughout history, over and over and over again, financial fraudsters have pumped and dumped, shorted and distorted, lied, hyped, hoaxed and conned. Their schemes have led to the collapse of companies, undermined financial systems, and even wiped out entire economies. Yet, somehow, capital markets persist. That is, they have at least, until now. That's because, somehow, until now, despite the litany of lies, we've always been able, after the disaster, to restore a semblance of trust. Without trust, capital markets just don't function. Yet, in recent decades, burned by tediously recurrent scandal, Our reservoir of trust has almost evaporated. And the fact is, the steaming puddle of confidence that's left? Well, it's now facing its most substantial and sophisticated test yet. A new age of market market manipulation manipulation is upon us. And it's a quantum leap beyond mere bogus press releases or photoshopped images. Emerging digital techniques available to just about anyone with a laptop mark a turning point in the creation of fake content. They threaten to virtually annihilate the truth, to make us question the reality of what we see and hear and experience. So-called deepfake technology, synthesized content, facilitated by a fecund social media landscape, supercharged by artificial intelligence and amplified by growing armies of automated bot networks, now regularly deceives and misleads us. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. Imagine what would happen if a doctored video portrayed your CEO, say, slurring their words, or stating false earnings estimates. Now imagine if it was virtually indistinguishable from the real thing. What would you do? What could you do? My guest today listens to the digital media's conversations. 
As a media analytics and measurement consultant, he's helped conduct new survey research on deepfake technology. He says investors already find it hard to separate fact from fiction. And he warns, we ain't seen nothing yet. On this sticker podcast, Brunswick Partners Antonio Ortolani on the new age of digital disinformation and what companies, society, and citizens can do to deter, detect, and defend against our new normal. Let's talk about your survey results and uh, what they mean for IROs. Sure, little background on it. So what we didn't want to do was tread into more research on political fake news or entering sort of more the social sphere of disinformation. We felt that uh, investors were underserved in, in, in understanding the effect of this problem, how it affects their investment decisions. Basically an underserved group that is going to be facing this problem already and will we'll only face it more uh, in the years to come. So. Who we looked at, this was a U.S. survey, it was run uh, late last summer, uh, 2019, and we were speaking to U.S. retail investors that had at least a quarter of a million dollars to uh, invest. And one of the main areas, of course we wanted to first start by understanding what's their level of awareness of the problem, and 88% of them, you know, we're getting close to almost all of them say, this is a problem, this is a threat. and. Similar number, see this as being a problem that's only getting worse in the years to come. This is not, we haven't hit the point where, uh, you know, enough solutions are in place, enough of an understanding of the problem that this is going to start to decrease. So there's, there's a, a real strong feeling that uh, we're only starting to get to, the, to the, the tip of this problem. So these are retail investors. Yeah. And, and they are pretty savvy with chat boards and that sort of thing. This is not yep. kind of their first rodeo. They're often up on, on this particular topic. Yep. We asked them, you know, where do they get their news from? These are all the top tier, you know, financial business sources that you would expect, as well as they're well immersed in various blogs, message boards, follow a number of financial influencers. These, these people know what they're doing. Uh, but at the same time, they realize that it's pretty easy to get tricked. Even though, uh, you know, staying on top of the news, it's becoming harder and harder to know what's real, what's fake. And this year, 2020, might be the year of the deep fake, right? Yes, yeah. So that surprisingly, and I think this is a number that, that since we ran this sur survey has, has definitely changed. So we asked a uh, level of understanding of what is a deep fake. Surprisingly, only 17% recognized what this term meant. We were, th this was the one number in the survey that we were really, really uh, quite surprised at. Now, that again was late summer 2019. With everything that's been happening um, politically, the term, you can't really avoid the term these days, right? So I'm pretty sure if we ran that survey again today, that number probably has tripled. Um, now, we haven't seen a lot of instances of, of deep fakes happening in the, in the corporate space, but the technology is only getting better. So uh, I think it's just a matter of not uh, if but when. And indeed it is now. Can we talk about examples that um, maybe some of the precursors to, to what we can expect? Um, so, uh, when, I, when I was thinking about us having this discussion today, I, I, I thought back to, this is probably like seven, eight, maybe nine years ago, 
I was working a different job at the time and working for, um, my client was Procter & Gamble. And this was the start of um, Photoshopping, uh, Photoshop manipulation. And a big issue that we faced working for PNG was, uh, and I'm sure some of your listeners recognize this story, especially if you're a parent, um, chemical burns coming from diapers, from Pampers in particular. And this was a faked photo that, like the Nestle story I referenced earlier, would seem to appear out of nowhere periodically two or three times a year. It was always the same Photoshop photo. Uh, it was fairly good quality, considering this was almost a decade ago. Um, but it was always coming from a different social account. It was always coming from a different part of the country. With the tools we had in place analytically at the time, we tried you know, forensically to, to trace who this was coming from. We didn't really have the, the means to do that, just to sort of figure out more and more that you know, the problem is just not going away. It's kind of like a viral outbreak. Exactly, exactly. But what was, what was curious about this was um, the fake burn on the baby's uh, on the baby's body was sort of halfway up their backside. You know, anyone who's changed a diaper on a baby knows that's not where a diaper goes. But still, like millions of people were sharing this. But uh, one, uh, and and I, I took a look yesterday, just quickly on Google. Like, is this thing still manifesting itself to this day? Happily, I think uh, a quick search said no, uh, that they, uh, they finally people have moved on from this story. The, the last mentions were from many years ago, so maybe this one has, has died out. But the nice thing was, and the reason I bring this, this story up, is that disinformation sometimes can be an opportunity. And there were a number of people who chimed in on this story on message boards saying, hey, people, you know, you, you say your parents, like, look at this. Like, there's no way that this is, this is, this is possible. Like, do you really think that this company would, would you know, be burying their sand, their head in the sand, you know, with an issue like this? Like, like let's all take a look at ourselves and, you know, is, is it so easy to, to be led astray here? So in that particular instance, at least there was this coming together of, look, this is fake. You know, this. You know, it was an we need to, fake. It was an obvious fake. It got people to talk about. It, it got and people it was, to talk about the problem. It was debunked, not necessarily by the victim so much. It's just, just the, an open the community of yeah. inter, of interested, you know, uh, participants, as you put it. Yeah, exactly. So, now that's not always going to happen. But I think in that case, a little bit of a win for the company in question here, and that it got its own consumer base to talk about the product and, you know, realize that this was completely fake, the product is completely safe, and, you know, uh, reputationally, it probably helped them in the end. Huh. So, so they relied on that. That's an interesting point. They relied on their consumer base to... Oh, they it. totally tapped into it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What else did they do? Did they have some sort of crisis plan beyond that? Or, or that, that led to uh, a lot of the initial crisis planning for P&G at that point, you know, in terms of digital response, right? Because they had ended up with so much data on this particular issue. The protocol that, that needed to be put into place, not something that we, we talk about a lot with our, with our clients, is it, it's one thing to be hit by a disinformation attack, but you know, within your own organization, what's your protocol? You know, who's, who's taking the lead on this? Is it the CEO? Is it the general counsel? Is it uh, IR, corporate comms? And, you know, 
whose role is, is to do what, uh, and so forth. So I think this is something that not enough uh, companies have thought of. Uh, but back to your question, that, that's, that led to a lot of, of uh, planning within ENG as to, right, this is not the last time, and I've worked with a number of pharma companies that faced similar issues that, right, we're gonna learn from this, and we're gonna become faster at it because what we find uh, is you have probably a quarter of a business day to respond to these types of threats online once they arise. Because what happens is the news cycle is pretty, it, it's so quick these days that people move on so quickly keeping the fake story in their head even though the company at a certain point comes out to debunk it, but they've moved on. So you really have about a half day to really get there actively to, uh, you know, this is something else that we found out through our survey is what's reassuring to corporate communicators based on the survey is, so where do these investors go when they start to uh, doubt a story? Around 70% of them go to the owned media properties of the company. They go to the company's website, they go to the CEO's uh, official Twitter handle. So that's good news for the, those of us working on corporate comms, is that there's still very high value and very high degree of credibility uh, within the owned channels. I wish I could keep telling you that our mission in life is connecting people, but it isn't. We just want to predict your future behaviors the more you express yourself, the more we own you. When you talk to companies, how hip are they to this as a threat? They're highly aware and uh, concerned about the threat. I saw some recent data from uh, University of South Carolina's Annenberg School that said, you know, 88%, 90% of corporate communicators see this as one of the, the key threats in their their day-to-day -day business. Wow. Now, uh, how prepared are they? Not very. I, I don't get a sense that they're very prepared to uh, face a direct disinformation attack. I think there's a, almost a wait and see. You know, is our industry going to be targeted? Is this just something that happens in politics? It's a it's a Washington problem. It's a social problem with polarized politics. You know, we're just this industrial group. Why would anyone go after us? But uh, again, I think um, there, there's still a high level of uh, unpreparedness. Is this? But is this? Would this be a, a board level issue? Looking at taking this on uh, in terms of risk, or is, is it still? I, I think when there's, uh, you know, the, the chief risk officer has to be, you know, highly aware. And, and I think this is, you know, uh, becomes an issue of uh, the various key senior positions within a company working together. This is not just corporate comms. It's not just the risk officers, not just the CEO. This, this problem cuts across so many different aspects of uh, a corporation that it could be attacking consumer base, the employee base, a political angle. Um, so it could be public affairs department in DC that uh, takes the lead. So again, without a, say, running a simulation on what are the different threats that could happen to our business. And I think that's where companies need to not just think of the problem in and of itself, but Every company is going to have its weaknesses, right? And this, again, disinformation works when it just takes something that's somewhat credible 
and can amplify it um, to the type of individuals that will give it a moment's thought, and that's when it becomes a problem. So mapping out various scenarios uh, within simulations, you know, is this a public affairs angle? Is this a, is this a product recall issue? Is this uh, disinformation aimed at our employees? Is it, I was just reading today, uh, all the um, urban myths and controversies coming out of the coronavirus already, and it's only been around a month and all the misinformation coming from that. So if you have plants in China, if you have a, a supply chain that's heavily focused on China, that also can be easy, easy target. So there's, uh, there's a real need for uh, senior execs, and I do believe the board should be looking at this. You know, what are our weaknesses, and what are let's start planning out our, our responses. I think it is a, a board issue. I think it should be a board issue. Just that another another trend uh, that a lot of boards are looking at now are um, is, is AI. That's kind of on the agenda, not just in terms of decision making for as a board, but also what it means for their industry, their company, and so on. That's that's really something yeah. they're looking into, and then that sort of dovetails into cybersecurity, which is another thing. So maybe it's something that comes from the board. Yeah, and, then, and you hit on the good news. AI is also there to defend you, right? So there are a lot of good companies out there now that uh, specialize in uh, disinformation detection. Um, you know, some of them can even go onto dark web if that needs uh, uh, doing. Uh, I, I will flat out say that is that is well beyond my... Uh, my uh, 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 capabilities, but these companies exist. They're usually um, founded by ex-intelligence and military and uh, definitely know what they're doing. Uh, but just on a much more day-to-day -day simpler level um, to your earlier question, like are these are companies prepared? Everyone is monitoring what's happening with their brands, their reputation, so forth online. It's those same tools can, can easily be set up and focused on looking for your weaknesses in terms of a disinformation attack. So uh, a lot of these companies already have the basic tools to do that. It's a matter of, again, understanding where your weak points are, understanding who your detractors are that could be making uh, problems for you, and ongoing 24-7 monitoring of the issue. A, a lot of times what I'm advising my clients on is to uh, start with a benchmark, not just of themselves, but of their industry. Because even if you're not specifically attacked, your company, your industry could be attacked. And obviously, you know, you're, you're tarred and feathered by association as being part of that industry. So a lot of this stuff doesn't need to be that uh, expensive, technical, uh, to, to start with, um, it's, it's a matter of having that technology in place and having somebody, you know, responsible for um, understanding, you know, where they stand with these threats. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. So, stay woke, bitches. So who should be leading the response then? I guess it depends on the threat, right? Yeah. I'm just run, wondering about the role of the IR. We talked about how it's a, a broad kind of threat and, and all these people are in their silos sort of thing and they, they need to have some kind of coordinated response plan. Right, right, right. And, and, and threat assessment is incredibly important because what we've seen in our work is that when you have a visual on, uh, we're using AI to identify 
what are the artificial accounts and what are the human accounts. This could be looking at an issue like, say, ocean plastic. It could be looking at Uber as a company. It could be looking at a political candidate. And you can see in real time the split between artificial accounts and human accounts. So it's looking, for an artificial account, what the AI algorithms are looking at are the velocity of tweets that, that one of the measures, a quick measure is if a Twitter account was created a week ago and it's spitting out 750 tweets a day and it has 20 followers, that's a fake. But it's doing this at a scale that it's understanding that this is an entire part of a conversation that's being dominated by bots and being able to do that in a matter of seconds. And so with that type of intelligence, IR, corporate comms, A, you need to figure out, do we need to respond? You know, are the, I've seen instances where the bots are just talking to other bots. So it becomes this interesting situation of, you know, by responding officially, are we pouring gas on a fire that we shouldn't, you know, you know we, we should just continue to monitor the situation to see, is this crossing over into humans, let alone people who actually have influence online, and, and then it becomes obviously uh, a much bigger issue. So again, the... the and, and can you connect it to stock price? I mean, how would you connect it to stock price? Right, which you can track in real time as the story is unfolding, yeah. so you, you have all this data overlaid on top of each other. So again, companies really need to not just invest the time in, in the, the ability to do this with AI, but also having the right staff handling it. This is not something that you just you know, simply pass down to junior staff member as, as someone who's you know, monitoring you know, uh, brands on a day. That's a different type of work. Um, so it, it just needs to have a lot more attention on, on a daily level. And obviously you can be alerted again through the, through the algorithms. If there's suddenly a spike in artificial conversation around your brands, you can get that, uh, that alert in real time. So uh, there, there's ways to stay on top of the issue, stay slightly ahead of it, but then there, there really needs to be that, that decision of, okay, do we need an official response to this? What's our protocol say? You know, is, this, is, is IR taking the lead? Is corporate comms taking the lead? Uh, is it to the level that the CEO uh, takes the lead on it? Who are your clients normally? Who do you interface when you, when you speak with companies? You name an industry and we're, uh, we're well within them. So it doesn't matter if it's tech or automotive or companies facing public. IR people normally? Or? Uh, it'll be a, a combination IR, corporate comms, uh, and, and, and it, it could be uh, C-suite level. You know, um, it can get to the point where, and I think this is sort of where the discussion needs to go is, you know, what's the regulatory aspect of this? Is this becoming a C-suite issue where there needs to be, um, you know, better regulation of this problem? And I'm thinking of general counsels and, and, and where they fit into this. Because obviously, your reputation is being tarnished. These are you know, nefarious actors that are, in our survey we asked, so who's behind these attacks? And the, the leading response uh, was financial fraudsters, so people looking for individual financial gain. Uh, and then, much trickier problem, um, hostile foreign government. And, and, and that's something that I think is going to only 
increase uh, the way the world's going these days. So if you're an American company operating in various parts of the world, uh, you can face uh, a lot of, um, let's call it adversity from um, what's happening out of Russia and other parts, Eastern Europe, uh, parts of Asia and so forth. So, so I think general counsels also need to be uh, very much at the heart of, you know, is this becoming a legal issue? So there's a communication part and a, yeah. and a legal part yeah. to, to, to your response. Right. On the communication side then, um, can we talk about concrete things you can do? We kind of touched on it before. Yeah. Decide whether you want to respond. Um, encourage people to go to your website and then flood all the, the, the social media sites with with a rebuttal yeah. of that. Um, what else can you do? Simplest recommendation, yeah. have this material prepared in advance. And this is, this is something that we, we're always recommending to our clients is you can't wait till a crisis hits to respond to it. You need to have a microsite ready. You need to have the tweets ready. Again, the protocol and so forth. So have this material in place so that it's really a matter of minutes and not a matter of hours. Because uh, again, with the news cycle today, people are gonna move on from your story pretty quickly and the seed of doubt has been planted and they're not looking at your rebuttal. They've moved on. Friends, I wish to rise above this divide and endorse my worthy opponent, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn, Sippy Prime Minister of our United Kingdom. Only he, not I, can make Britain great again. Huzzah! I'm thinking there is going to come a time where these things are just not refutable. They're so good. That's just not going to happen. You're going to maybe need kind of a, even a third party person in there, somebody who's really trusted. I don't know. The New York Stock Exchange or something. Right, right. Yeah, and that's the problem with deep fakes, right? Because we're humans are so visually based in, in, in our uh, cognition, how we process information, that that's obviously the, 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 the trickiest problem to deal with is this, this how the technology has, has evolved so quickly, how accurate it's become. But um, I, I think there is, you know, we, we can seek some solace in, again, you know, there, there's technology that can uh, protect against deep fakes. I think something as mundane as watermarking technology uh, is going to come back in a big way and companies will ensure that all of their official video communications are always watermarked so they can quickly state, that's a fake. It, it doesn't have the, you know, it, it, it's, you know, like when you, the, the, the dual recognition on your smartphone to, to get into, um, you know, your bank account or whatever it happens to be, it's going to be that kind of protection. I don't think we're there today, but I think the companies that are uh, developing that type of, of uh, technology, they're really going to help the problem and honestly, they're going to benefit, you know, it's, it's going to be, have to be that level of defense is, is eventually going to, uh, uh, to rise. Well, what really scares you? Is there anything sort of in terms of the technology that really scares you that's coming up? The, the, the technology doesn't scare me. The, we, <laughs> the people, <laughs> uh, that's what scares me. It's, it's the, the, the toughest issues that my colleagues and I grapple with is the fact that fake news, disinformation, has just become a part of everyday life. Right. Be it at a, at a corporate level, financial level, be it politics, social issues, that um, it, it's, 
continually becoming more and more of a problem what people will believe and that we exist in these bubbles that people know this stuff is fake but it affirms their point of view and that makes them feel good and that makes them share stories even though they know this is probably not true so I think you know maybe I've gone beyond your question but I think the problem is how do we educate ourselves to better understand what's real what's fake you know uh, I'm a parent how do you how do you teach your kids to deal with these issues and I think that if there's one sort of shining star that's out there is uh, the country of Finland and there's, there's plenty out there they're just uh, uh, received the uh, Yet again, for another year, uh, I forget the name of this, this study, but looking at uh, levels of investment on educating uh, national populations on how to deal with misinformation, Finland always comes out on top. This starts at an elementary school level. It's not just how to read the news, it's looking at how statistics can be used to manipulate a particular angle of a story. So they've really embedded this in their, their national culture. Now, Finns, will tell you that they're a small homogeneous country and it's going to be easier for them to do that than say the United States or Canada or Europe, European, a lot of bigger European countries, but you know, they show that it can be done, that they're investing in doing this, that you can develop these programs, but it's not, you know, if we think that fake news is going away tomorrow, like look, this is, it's 2020, it's a national election year, this problem is going to you know, go atomic <laughs> pretty soon. So uh, hopefully people start looking more inward at, you know, why does it, you know, how can we start fighting this problem at, at a personal level? I think one other area that I think is, is going to be sort of a growing focus uh, uh, now in the, in the immediate future is sort of the, the legal issues around this. And I by no means am a lawyer, but I think there, there's going to need to be uh, much more of a, a regulatory legal discussion around, because these people intend to cause harm, right? So, um, you know, at, at what point does this go beyond, you know, with, with the deep fakes, there's, from the technology company side, they'll say, this is freedom of expression, that people should not be stopped from creating these types of videos. There's, there's artists that argue in favor of deep fakes, but at what point is this crossing the line to this? This was simply created to cause harm and cause a lot of it. So at, at what point does this become more of a legal regulatory issue? your ticker podcast. My thanks to Brunswick Partners Antonio Ortolani. I wish I had that voice. Antonio's survey was aimed at investors, but what do corporates think? Do you feel there's enough being done from a regulatory and legal perspective to protect your company against disinformation? And how vulnerable do you feel? Send me a voice memo to jeff.cosette at irmagazine.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Citadel Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. The content of this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Citadel Securities.